Well, good morning. Uh, before I get into what is obviously the uh, easiest and lightest text in the book of James, let me introduce myself to those of you that I don't know. My name is Rob, and it's good to be back here with you all. It's been a few weeks since I've been here with you teaching due to spring break, and it's really good to be back. Good to worship with you all today. Let me say one other thing really briefly. Um, this week and last week, you've seen in the program an interest meeting for a trip next spring to Israel. And this is the only time we're going to announce this because the trip's going to fill up probably later this month. But we'll be taking about 50 people in uh, 2020. Uh, the dates are in your program. But we are going to have an interest meeting today. If you have any interest in knowing more about this, I would love for you to come and hear more. It's an incredible trip, a trip of a lifetime. If you've always wanted to go, maybe 2020 could be your year. One correction I want to make to that slide, our meeting today is not going to be in the Habitat Restore. It's going to be right here in our building in the Crew 252 room, which is in that back corner, one of our children's classrooms. Uh, you can find it, just ask around. The program information is correct. The screen location is wrong. So we'll get started. It says 1230. We'll start as soon as this um, worship service is over. We've got some lunch for you. You don't have to sign up. Just show up. We'd love to tell you some more about that. All right, back to our text here. You know, we get to a passage like this, and you think, how in the world am I going to find life and hope in a text that just says, you know, it just begins. It's like, weep and mourn for your miseries which are coming upon you. And all of us in the room that... Um, uh, are addressed by this text. You know, it's addressed to the rich, and, and most of us don't want to associate with that. But if we think about contextually uh, our resources compared to the resources of those people in the first century, and let's not even talk about first century compared to the resources of anyone in most of the world right now. We have to own the fact that we're part of the rich, and some of you don't feel wealthy. Some of you are struggling, maybe month to month to kind of provide for your family and you don't feel wealthy, but I think we take some things for granted. If you know where your next meal is coming from and you have more than two pair of shoes, you're very wealthy by the world's standards. In fact, I pulled up a little stat this week. A single person in the United States that makes $30,000 a year would be in the top 3.8% of the global uh, economy in terms of annual income. So anytime we get to a passage like this one that's hard and heavy about wealthy, we at least have to ask the question, what would the Holy Spirit be saying to me? What would he be desiring to say to me to do in me through this text? And we have to be willing to hear. So here's where we're going to go in the message. I'm going to start with some cultural context because it's important to kind of know a little bit about wealth and money and the culture that James was writing to and compare it to our own. Not everything was the same obviously. Then we're going to walk through it verse by verse. And, and if you're new to fellowship, we call this exposition, expository teaching, where we just take a passage like this and we just walk through it verse by verse. We're doing this through the whole book of James. One of the great things about that is it keeps you from avoiding passages that you might not want to preach as a preacher. This one in particular is not on my top 10 list of passages I've always wanted to preach. And I've never heard a sermon on this text um, before I've had this opportunity to dig into it. So we're going to walk through it. Then I want to ask the question at the end, what do we do with it? How do we actually apply it? Because we are here not just to learn. We're here to learn and then live out what God would teach us. So let's begin with that cultural context. Three things you need to know. I'm going to try to fly through this because our service was a little long in the last hour. We want to, I want to try to tighten some things. Number Three things you need to know about the cultural context back then. Number one, there was virtually no middle class you had very, very wealthy. You had very, very poor. And there weren't many wealthy. Most people were poor. And, and the, the gap was increasing between the rich and the poor in first century Palestine. Number two, there were no governmental safety nets. 
So if you weren't provided for by your family, it was a patriarchal system, you were gonna be destitute and probably you were going to die if you were outside of a patriarch's protection. This is why the Bible reminds us over and over, care for the widow and the orphan. They're the ones that were marginalized and left out of that society's safety nets. They didn't have a patriarch. It also helps you understand when the Bible uses the family language about the church, about Christians. It's like you're part of a new family. That's kind of point number three is that the church was designed to be a new society or a new structure. So think about this. If you're part of the early church, when James was writing this, you've been called into a new family under a new patriarch. God the Father is the true patriarch. We have access to that family through the elder brother, our elder brother, Jesus Christ, who has adopted us into the family. And through that adoption, we now have access to the the patriarch and the the breadth of of that provision. This is why Christians are called to share what we have with others in the church because now your faith is, is, is more important to you than your blood when it comes to your community. So all this to say, all this context to say, um, when the Bible addresses wealthy people and poor people in the New Testament with the church, it's mostly not being addressed to rich people because most people in that church were poor. And most of the rich people in that church had given away a significant portion of their wealth to provide for the poor people, which is exactly what God had called them to do. But there were rich people in the church, just as there are still wealthy people in the church. And I want you to think about this globally for a minute. God's given us some significant resources that we want to use to bless the rest of the family of Christ around the whole world. That's why things like Global Christmas that we do every December, this offering that some of you just gave to in this very room today, do you see that maybe God has given us more than we need financially so that we would not just spend it or hoard it, but that we would bless others with it? That's what we're called to be and do as the church. That's the new paradigm that we're called to view our resources and money to. Now, with all that in mind, let's talk about rich people. And I, and I want to tell you, the kind of rich people James is addressing here is not just everyone with money. It's those with money that are not stewarding their money according to the paradigm that the New Testament introduced. According to this idea that if you've been given more than what you need, it's actually not for you. It's for you to steward to those who have not been given enough. That's the paradigm. So when James says in verse one, let's put it on the screen, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He's not talking to generous rich people. He's talking to wealthy people who are using their excess for their own pleasure, for their own selfishness, rather than stewarding it and giving it away. Now, I don't think that lets many of us off the hook. I don't think it lets me off the hook. I can be very selfish with my excess. Not that I have a whole lot, if you're wondering, but what excess I do, I can be very selfish with that if I'm, if I'm frank. Now, we're gonna walk through this text with this verse that's already on the screen, and we're just gonna talk about it, and we gotta be real about this, and then ask ourselves how it applies to us. What does it mean, re- weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you? Well, that's the warning here. So James has said, I'm gonna address a subgroup of people, you rich, and I'm gonna give you a warning. Weep and howl for your miseries which are come, coming upon you. This is where I want to insert um, a bit of a parable. 
The word parable means to set alongside. So you got two things, you're gonna set them alongside so that you can learn, uh, learn something from the parable. Jesus used parables all the time. I'd like to use a parable today and I'm gonna take it from a secular story written by the great novelist Charles Dickens because I cannot read this text without thinking of a particular character from one of Dickens' most famous books. Take a look at this scene to remind who I'm, I'm talking about. Seven years ago today. What's that you say? Mr. Marley died. Seven years ago, this very day. Would it be too much to ask that you return to the work for which I pay you so handsomely? Mr. Cratchit! The fire's gone cold, Mr. Scrooge. Come over here, Mr. Cratchit. What is this? A shirt. And this? A waistcoat. And this. A coat. These are garments, Mr. Cratchit. Garments were invented by the human race's protection against the cold. Once purchased, they may be used indefinitely for the purpose for which they are intended. Cold burns. Cold is momentary and cold is costly. There will be no more coal burnt in this office today. Is that quite clear, Mr. Cratchit? Yes, sir. Now, please get back to work before I am forced to conclude that your services are no longer required. Yes, sir. Now, um, despite how it looked, that was not downtown Franklin at Dickens' Christmas at the beginning there, right? That's actually the real thing. Well, uh, technically not. It's a 1984 version of the real thing. But the name Ebenezer Scrooge is synonymous with somebody who's wealthy and stingy. Grumpy, you know. We call them a Scrooge. And so fascinating that that even throughout, you know, it's been 150 years or so since Dickens wrote that, and even today we still use that character as our paradigm. And if you have Scrooge in mind as you read through this text, it's gonna bring it to life for you. Now, I want to say this: Scrooge was certainly stingy and selfish, and he did not like Christmas. But there was another characteristic of him that was even more dominant than any of those things. It's his selfishness. Everything he did or said was filtered through this, what's best for me? What do I have coming to me? What's in it for me? Take a look at this next scene where you'll see that on display. Uh, Mr. Scrooge, I presume. Indeed you do, sir. You don't know us. Nor do I wish to. My name is Poole, and this is Mr. Hackett. Excellent. Now, if you'll allow me to pass. Uh, let me explain something. At this festive season of the year, it seems desirable that those of us with means should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at this time. Provision? Are you seeking money from me then? Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. The workhouses, they're still in operation? They are. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill, the poor houses, still in full vigor? All very busy, sir. <laughs> I was afraid from what you said that something had stopped them in full force. 
A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and food and warmth. Oh, what can we put you down for, sir? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. My taxes help to support the public institutions which I have mentioned, and they cost enough. Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, perhaps they had better do so and uh, decrease the surplus population. Surely you don't mean that, sir. With all my heart. Now, if you will go about your business, gentlemen, and allow me to go about mine. You hear that soundtrack cue in the background? You know, that's the, that's the sound of the self-absorbed life. Scrooge's problem was not his money. His problem was his selfishness. And this is where we find ourselves in that character. I think one of the reasons that that character has been so powerful and enduring is the fact that everybody can identify with Scrooge just a little bit. You know, I wish to be left alone. <laughs> you know, they run into him at the beginning, you know, and he's like, uh, here's who we are. We haven't met you yet. He's like, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to meet you. That's in me. Some of that's in me. Some of that's in you. There's a little inner Scrooge in me. I love Christmas, but I can be really selfish with my time and my resources. So as you go through this text, I, I, I don't think I can let us off the hook and faithfully teach this text. He's saying, weep and wail and mourn the miseries that are coming upon you. And I, I think about this, this man who has he's built his life just all about his own desires, his own pleasures, his own wants, his own needs. Leave me alone. Let me just be and make my money, Scrooge says. And then he gets visited by these three ghosts. What were they offering to him? Truth. They gave him eyes to see what he was unable to see apart from their intervention. I believe the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, is doing something similar through this text to Christians throughout 2,000 years, 2000 years, including us today. So with that in mind, we now go to verse two. We have this image of Scrooge. We're, we're mindful that there's a part of that attitude in us, that selfishness and how we might utilize our resources more selfishly than generously. Then we get to verse two, and I'm gonna read uh, the first half of verse three along with it. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. What's going on here? Most scholars would say he's actually using the prophetic past tense. What that means is uh, he's giving a picture of the future that has not yet come. He's using past tense to describe it. Because right now, wealthy people are gonna say, what do you mean? My garments are not moth-eaten. I'm looking good. That's what Scrooge would say. And yet there is something coming, James is saying, a glimpse of the future, very similar to what the ghost of Christmas future is going to show Ebenezer Scrooge, a glimpse of the future that you need to see. According to the Holy Spirit speaking through James, here's the big picture truth about wealth. It's short-lived and fragile. And, and we know that, but we have to be reminded of that. Here's what James is saying to wealthy people. Understand this, your, your wealth has no eternal value. It can't give you what you really need. Now, this is interesting to me because think about what do we depend on material things and money and resources for? Like what are the, we talk a lot about the heart here at Fellowship. Let's talk about the deep desires of our heart. What deep desires do we try to satisfy through material things and money and wealth. 
I think there are three that come to my mind. There are probably more, but there are three. Uh, some of you will closely identify with one of these or the other, and maybe some of us all three. The first is security. We have a deep desire in our heart for security that we try to meet that desire through having not just enough, but having a little extra so that we can be protected, so we can feel secure, because life is hard. You never know what's going to happen. Now, God put a desire for security in you, and it's not wrong to wisely save, et cetera, et cetera. But some of us are, are literally like, we're, we, we go to money for a sense of security more than we go to God, our provider, you see. So that's the first thing we go to money for security. The second thing we go to money for, money for is identity. Identity. In other words, I've got to have an, 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 the, the right kind of clothes, the right kind of house, the right kind of car. Maybe not to be at the top of the heap, but I can't be at the bottom either because I, don't, I can't feel good about myself there. So it's status. It's a status symbol. For some of you, more than others, you're really kind of driven and you're wired with the identity part of that. You're putting your identity and your material wealth more than you are in what what the scripture would say is true about you in Christ of your identity. The third is comfort. Comfort. So the pleasures of life, maybe a little bit of travel, a little bit of comfort, a little bit of enjoyment of life. I mean, we just need a little bit of a medication to keep the harshness of life at arm's length from us, a little bit of comfort in our lives. Again, is there anything wrong with a little bit of comfort? No. But if you're putting your hope in, in pursuing material things and money and wealth to provide you ultimate comfort, James is saying there's going to come a day that it's going to be moth-eaten and it's going to rust over and it won't provide you lasting comfort or lasting identity or lasting security because wealth doesn't last. Now, as Christians, we know theologically our security, identity, and comfort come from whom? From Christ. From Christ. And so Jesus himself, Matthew 6, 19 through 20, says this, and I, I want you to see how similar what Jesus said to what James later said. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Do you hear how similar this language is? But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. I'm gonna pause there, come back to verse 21 in a minute. I love Jesus because he's so practical. I mean, among other reasons, I love Jesus, but he's so practical. And he's not saying, don't store up treasure. He's saying, store up treasure in the right place. Like, put it in the place that actually works. Like, make a wise investment, not a foolish investment. That's what Jesus is saying. And then verse 21's the kicker. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you look to earthly, i.e. material, temporary things, for security, identity, or comfort, it will result in a dislocated heart. What do I mean dislocated heart? Uh, Eric said our mission is to help people find wholehearted life in Jesus. The deepest longings of your heart are meant to be satisfied in Christ and in your relationship with God. So if your heart is meant to be attached to that core relationship, but your heart is being invested down here on things that don't last on earthly things, you've got a dislocated heart, not a whole heart. It's the message of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases, back to our text, James 5, James 5, verse 3, Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way. This is so good. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. 
Do you hear kind of the, the love behind that? I mean, if you've got a cancer in your gut, you need to know about it. You want to know about it even because there's only hope if it's diagnosed so that treatment can begin. And, and Peterson is paraphrasing uh, James 5, verse 3, and saying sometimes the things we go to for, for comfort, security, identity, they're not actually getting that. They're actually harming us more than not. And here's the way I connected with Peterson's words. I thought about, you know, it's easier to think about your past decisions, not your current decisions. So I thought about some things in my past that I got so excited about, bought like new technology or, you know, my first car. And all that stuff's gone now, y'all. That, 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 was, that was the stuff of future yard sales. And I spent not only money, but my time, my energy, my heart, of my affection. And some of that stuff pulled me away, even, even a little bit, even subtly, but it pulled me away from my affection being toward God, my relationship with him, my family, pursuing things that actually matter, and toward things that, that ultimately just don't last, that rust over. Let's look at the rest of verse three. We've already covered the first phrase. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be, in the next phrase, their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. He's using some metaphorical language here. Number one, gold and silver don't technically rust. Number two, I, I, you know, how, what will it mean for rust to consume your flesh like fire? Well, he goes on. It's in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. So not only is it like they don't last long, but man, we're living in the last days, at least the last era, James is saying. Certainly true for us today, even more so. And he's saying, look, it's not gonna last. Don't put your energy and your effort. Don't put your heart there. Here's what I think James is getting after with verse three. Rusted wealth is evidence of misuse. What do I mean by that? Remember what the New Testament teaches about excess resources. When you have more than you need, now, you know, you, the Bible teaches you to wisely save, et cetera, but, but when you have more than what you really need, you are instructed, you're called, you're invited to use that excess in provision for those without. That's what we're really called to do. So rusty wealth, moth-eaten garments is evidence that it sat and rotted rather than being put to use to what God gave it to you for. In the uh, fourth century, there was a, a church father, a, a theologian and, and, and church leader, Basil the Great. I mean, you know, I how'd you like to have the great? You know, not, not as the end of your name. Not many people have that, but, but Basil did. And here's what he wrote. I, I both love and hate this quote. When someone steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. Should we not give the same name to one who could clothe the naked and does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. He sounds a lot like James. He's just not making a political or social statement there. He's actually reflecting the theology of the New Testament. So, so far, we've seen a warning, you know, consisting of the truth about wealth. It, it, it falls hard on me. I don't know about you. I don't tend to think about wealth the right way, if I'm honest with you all. Not usually. We've seen the consequences of misusing it. It can be like a cancer in our gut, eating ourselves from within, consuming our flesh like fire. 
Now, the next few verses, verses four to six, are gonna list some specific charges that, that James, really the Holy Spirit through James, was gonna level against the selfish rich in his day. And I want us to see how many of these could apply to us. Some will, some may not. Think of these three next three verses as the Holy Spirit saying through James, here's what you're guilty of. Here's the first charge, verse four. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Charge number one, you're guilty of injustice toward those whom you rightfully owe. You know, some of us in the room could identify, maybe not all of us could identify with this particular uh, charge. I, I was reminded uh, to just think back in my own self. Have, have, I, have I been quick to pay those to whom uh, I, I owe? you know, services, um, have I paid them the full amount or have I argued with them and kind of like said, well, you know, you said this and said that. And, you know, again, um, you got to use balance here as you kind of look at this and you got to trust the spirit to lead you and convict you or not convict you. I think it's interesting the way he describes it this way, the pay of the laborers cries out against you. Reminds me of Genesis 4.10, God says to Cain, who just killed his brother Abel, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. As if this verse weren't already serious enough, the Lord of the Sabaoth, um, you might be wondering, what does that word mean? It's not Sabbath, it's Sabaoth. Sabaoth is a Hebrew word that was just brought over into the Greek. And then in our translation, it was just brought straight over into English. Sabaoth in Hebrew, it means host. It means the, the heavenly army, this vast angelic, army of warriors. And so here's what James is saying. He's saying, you have aroused the commander of the heavenly armies to move against you in justice for those you have denied. Those are strong words, heavy words. Charge number two, if they can identify with that one, this one you may be able to. Charge number two, verse five, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. Interesting phrase. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That metaphor is so vivid. James uses metaphors all throughout. You know, the tongue is like a fire and he's using all these different metaphors. And he gets to this one and he's saying, you fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. It's a picture of, of farm animals gorging themselves with no idea that they won't even have time to digest their food before their lives come to an end. Instead of fattened bellies, James describes fattened hearts. Isn't that interesting? He's painting the picture of someone who indulges all the desires of their heart with material things that can't ever satisfy, that can't fulfill, and material comforts and pleasures, you just to excess, wanton pleasure. And they, this person that James has in mind who's fattening their heart has no regard for what actually satisfies. They're just gobbling up all the earthly comforts and pleasures and wealth and material gain and success and status that they can. Uh, and they have no idea or, or no conscious thought around their own coming judgment when they will stand before their king and there will be a sense of accountability to whom much is given, scripture would say, much is required. Some of you are thinking, where's the grace in this, right? We're not saved by how we leverage our wealth. We're saved by the blood of Christ. 
Yes, we'll get to that. But I want you to sit in this tension. These are words of judgment. Eugene Peterson, again, helps us with a paraphrase. He says it this way, you've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it later is a fatter than usual corpse. There is a final charge right here in verse six. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. What is this about? You know, I don't think I'm guilty of murder. You know, I don't think anybody in the room is guilty of murder. There's two ways to understand this verse. One is literally, and it could very well be James had literal murder in mind. And we'll start there. And then I want to go to another thing he may have had in mind. Um, remember that the church had been scattered. Why was it scattered? Through persecution. James is writing to his brothers and sisters scattered throughout the area. He's the pastor of the Jerusalem church writing to them scattered. Um, they were scattered when Stephen, who was a righteous man, was killed, was martyred, the first martyr. Many other Christians had been martyred since when James was writing this. Who killed Stephen? Those with religious power, political power, religious authority, political authority, who were also wealthy. You did not have influence in that society without wealth, ever. So could James have had in mind the people that killed Stephen or, or any of the Christian martyrs? Quite possibly. Here's another scenario. He could, he could be speaking to both. There's a way to understand this verse that doesn't require it to be talking about literal murder, but about the attitudes and behaviors of rich people toward the poor. Think about Jesus. Here's, here's a really good selling point for this interpretation. James is often referring to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, like all throughout James. In fact, we already quoted one, you know, moth and rust that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. So it could be that James had in mind this phrase from the Sermon on the Mount delivered by Jesus. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say that anyone who is angry with someone in their hearts has committed murder against them. So think about a rich, wealthy person and all their arrogance, and they just despise those that are below them, and they kind of just step on them metaphorically through their attitudes and their words and their behaviors. Could be what James has in mind. I think a good example of that would be Ebenezer Scrooge in that line we heard earlier. Scrooge said this, if they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. That's murder in his heart, I think. I wanna read to you uh, a scene from the book, the actual Christmas Carol book. I, I, I read it for the first time two weeks ago as I was preparing for this. I had previously just watched the movies and such. It is marvelously written, as I guess I should have expected from one of the great English novelists. But here's a scene I want to read that captures the weight of this idea really strongly. Uh, it's in uh, The Ghost of Christmas Present, and Scrooge is now in the home uh, in his own day uh, of Bob Cratchit, his employee. And he's in, that, he's in that family living room kitchen area, and he's been watching them eat their Christmas dinner. It's a beautifully written scene where they have this meager meal and yet they get so much joy out of it. And it's such a contrast with Scrooge. Now he can't be seen or heard, but he's there just watching the scene along with the ghost of Christmas present. At the end of the meal, Tiny Tim says his famous line. You'll hear it again at the end of the book when you read it, but Tiny Tim says, God bless us, everyone. Tiny Tim sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. Bob held his withered little hand in his as if he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken away from him 
Remember, Tim is very sickly. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before, tell me if tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, said Scrooge. Oh, no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, said the ghost, if man you be in heart, forbear that wicked thought until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live and what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground. There is something of Scrooge's response that we need this morning. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground. Should we not, whatever parts of us the Spirit has laid heavy on us these words, should we not respond in kind? I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what do we do with this? You know, is there hope in this text? Where is it? Where's the gospel? We're going to get there. Yes, we are. It might help us first, though, to think about the life of Ebenezer Scrooge one last time. You know, why was he haunted by those three ghosts? He wanted them to leave him alone. He says it over and over. Just leave me alone. They won't leave him alone. Why don't they leave him alone? They saw that he could change. The whole point of the story, the, the moral, the narrative, the, the whole lesson of the book ends up being it's not too late for redemption, even for a man like Scrooge. And he's purposely painted in such a light that none of us say we're worse than him. There is hope of redemption. In Scrooge's final moments with the ghost of Christmas future, the ghost of Christmas future had led him over his own grave. And, you know, this is like this, like, really scary, like, dark, ominous, death-like creature. And he doesn't even speak, which makes him all that more terrifying. And he just points out the name on the tombstone, Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge falls on his knees, and he cries out to the, the ghost. He says, please tell me it's not too late. Please tell me this is only the future that might be, not the future that must be. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you've shown me by an altered life. What was he essentially saying? He was saying, I now see that I've been wrong in some areas of my life, and I repent. I repent. And then the very next thing that happens is the scene we're about to watch.
nine o'clock. In daylight. But what day? Hello, you there, boy. Me, sir? Yes, you, my good fellow. What day is today? Today? Why, it's Christmas Day, of course. Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. The spirits did it all in one night. Well, they can do anything they like. Of course they can. Um, hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one uh, on the corner? I should hope I did. Intelligent boy, remarkable boy. Um, do you know if they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging there? What? The one as big as me? <laughs> Delightful boy. <laughs> Pleasure talking to you. <laughs> the one as big as you. It's hanging there now. Well, go and buy it. Yes, go and buy it and bring them round so that I may tell them where to deliver it. Come back with the man, I'll give you a shilling. Come back in less than five minutes, I'll give you half a crown. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. I must stress myself. So much to do. I don't want to lose any time. I was light. I was happy as an angel. <laughs> As a drunken man. <laughs> Merry Christmas to everybody. And a happy new year to the world. Uh, you can uh, answer that. Hey, as many times as I've seen that scene, I smile every single time. You, you can't help. You see the joy that's flowing out of him. Now, here's what's interesting. Dickens doesn't explain the gospel in the Christmas story. You know, he doesn't even go there. He doesn't talk about Jesus. But that scene is as good as any I've ever seen of what it looks like to be born again. Now, here's, here's where I want to take you. This, this is where we're going to do a gospel turn in this sense. Even as difficult as a text as this is, there is a hint of the power and beauty of the gospel right in our text. And I want you to see it. Look back at verse six. In fact, put verse six back on the screen. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. We talked about who James is talking about. He may have been talking about Stephen or other martyrs. He could have been talking about the generic poor and the attitudes against them. Or, and or, he may have had someone else in mind. Scripture teaches us there's only one who was ever truly righteous. Only one righteous man whoever lived. He was put to death by rich and powerful people and he did not resist them. Here's how the story of Jesus played out. He came from heaven. All the wealth in the universe he had access to. He could have been the wealthiest man of his time or of ever, of any time. Instead, he became he chose to become one of the poorest, poorer than anybody in this room, maybe poorer than anyone you've ever met, Jesus was. He chose that. He elected to be misunderstood, mischaracterized, looked down upon, overlooked, rejected, betrayed, abandoned, spat upon, mocked, and ultimately killed. He did not resist it, any of it. Why? Why? This is where we turn to Paul with the most succinct explanation of the gospel in economic terms that you could ever see. 
And I want you to see this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you through his poverty might become rich. Isn't this interesting? There is a sense that wealth is yours, that the desires of your heart to be wealthy and be cared for and have security, identity, and comfort are there because they're meant to be filled, not denied. But they're filled through him. They're filled through Christ. What does, what does Paul mean that we might become rich? In what kind of way might we become rich? In every kind of way. That we might have eternal security, that we might have true identity, and we might have permanent comfort that we might have the wealth of transformed lives and the riches of whole hearts. This is all the stuff that you desperately need and want and your money can't buy. It's true wealth. And once you see that in the gospel, true wealth is yours, then all the money and stuff and material things, it just becomes money and material things. It's not your status. It's not your comfort. It's not your security any longer. And therefore you can open your hands with it. You can be transformed. Scrooge says at the end, he wakes up and he says, so much to do and so little time. And when you read the book, the way Charles Dickens describes the end of Scrooge's life is he says, no one in his day was as generous as the last years of Ebenezer Scrooge's life. Jesus came so that we who are in reality so poor in things that really matter so that we might become rich, so that our rags would be traded into the robe of the family. This is why he came. This is how the gospel transforms us. You can't walk out of here without the gospel fueling your transformation and expect to think about money differently. You can't and you won't. You'll just feel guilt that you have money. But if you focus on the gospel, if you focus that Jesus became poor so that you could be rich in all the ways that matter, your hands will begin to be loosened and you'll see your things as, as just things that you can steward to bless other people. That's the kind of transformation that the Holy Spirit is going for in us.